0: When the president of Harvard is a figure on a Saturday Night Live skit, when three presidents of universities combine to produce the most watched congressional hearing film clip in history, when applications to Harvard fall in a several-month period by more than they've ever fallen in a one-year period before. When alumni are widely repudiating their alma maters, when they're the subject of as many legal investigations as the Boeing company, you have a real crisis in higher education. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. The
1: idea that liberal democracy would prove to be the uncontested ruling ideology of the 21st century has died many deaths. It died its first death on 9-11, another during the 2008 Great Financial Crisis, another when Xi Jinping Consolidated his power in China, showing that the country was not, by any appearances, moving towards greater freedom and permissiveness. And it has died many deaths in Russia as well. And yet, the death, the murder of Alexei Navalny a few days ago in captivity in a Russian prison on fraudulent criminal charges is one such turning point. It reminds us, if reminding was still necessary, that it is a mistake to assume that the arc of the universe always bends towards justice or that the ideas of liberal democracy are sure to prevail. But that is not a reason to give up on these Ideas, Nor is it a reason to accept they're somehow Western-only, that they only appeal to or have validity in one part of the world. I remain steadfastly committed to the values of liberal democracy, which around the world have created the societies that are most prosperous, most free, most respectful, of individual rights, most attractive to people from around the world. What we should do is not to give up on these values because we see that in many places like Russia, they seem to be, for now, out of reach. What we should do rather is to finally recognize just how fragile those values are and just how much effort, argument, activism, it will take for these values to in fact prevail and perhaps even expand in the 21st century. My guest today is Larry Summers. Larry was the 71st United States Secretary of the Treasury under Bill Clinton. He was a director of the National Economic Council under Barack Obama, and he also served as president of Harvard University from 2001 to 2006. Finally, and I'm not just listing prestigious positions, but pointing out one that is very interesting, he recently joined the Board of Directors Of open AI. We had a conversation that draws on the different strands of Larry's career. We started by talking about the crisis at American University, a crisis both of meaning and potentially of sustaining the social support they need to function at the levels they have in recent years. We talk about the future of artificial intelligence, about the promise and the perils of this earth shattering technology. And finally, we talk a little bit about the state of the economy and what it might mean for the 2024 elections. Larry Summers, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. The last few months have been rather eventful at Harvard University. Tell us your view of what has happened and why it matters.
0: It's been a uh, very difficult time. I think what universities do is as important as the work of any other institution in our society in terms of training young people and preparing them for careers of leadership and in terms of developing new ideas that set the tone for the cultural, the political, the policy debates that go forward. Paul Samuelson famously said that if he would be allowed to write the economics textbooks, he didn't care who would get to perform as the finance ministers going forward. So I think what happens in universities is immensely important. And I think there is a widespread sense, and it is, I think, unfortunately, with considerable validity that many of our leading universities have lost their way. Values associated as central to universities, excellence, truth, integrity, opportunity have come to seem like secondary values relative to the pursuit of certain concepts of social justice, the veneration of certain concepts of identity, the primacy of feeling over analysis and the elevation of subjective uh, perspective, and that has led to clashes within universities and, more important, an enormous estrangement between universities and the broader society. When the president of Harvard is a figure on a Saturday Night Live skit, when three presidents of universities combine to produce the most watched congressional hearing film clip in history, when applications to Harvard fall in a several-month period by more than they've ever fallen in a one-year period before, when alumni or Widely repudiating their alma mater's when um, they're the subject of as many legal investigations as the Boeing company. You have a real crisis in higher education. And I think it's been a long time coming because of those changes in values That's wonder made possible.
1: Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Tell us a little bit more about the nature of the conflict here. What is the conception of the university that has historically guided it, or at least let's say guided it from 1970 to 2010 or whatever kind of period you want to select? And how is it that those values have changed over the last
0: 10 years I think the values that animated me to spend my life in universities were values of excellence in thought, in pursuit of truth. They were the idea that we're never going to find some ultimate perfect truth, but through argument, through analysis, through discussion, through study. We can get closer to truth, and a world that is better understood is a world that is made better. And I think increasingly, all you have to do is read the rhetoric of commencement speeches. It's no longer what we talk about. We talk about we should have analysis, we should have discussion, but the result of that is that we will each have more respect for each other's point of view as if all points of view are equally good and there's a kind of arbitrariness to a conception of truth. That's a kind of return to pre-enlightenment value and I think very much a step backward. I thought of the goal of the way universities manage themselves As being the creation of an ever larger circle of opportunity in support of as much merit and as much excellence as possible. I spoke in my inaugural address about how a century before Harvard had been a place where New England gentlemen taught other New England gentlemen. And today it was so much better because it reached. To every corner of the nation, every subgroup within the population, every part of the world. But it did that as a vehicle for providing opportunity and excellence for those who could make the greatest contribution. But again, we've moved away from that to an idea of identity essentialism, the supposition that somehow the conditions of your birth determine your views on intellectual questions, whether it's interpretations of quantum theory or Shakespeare, and so that instead our purpose is not to bring together the greatest minds, but again, is back to some idea around multiplicity of perspective with perspective being identified with identity. We used to venerate and celebrate excellence. Now at Harvard, and Harvard is not atypical of leading universities 70 or 75% of the grades are in the A range. Why should the institutions that are most celebrating of excellence have only one grade for everyone in the top half of, those of the class, but nine different grades that are applied to students in the lower half of the class? That is a step away from celebrating and venerating excellence. By the way, as a brief side note, I think on the grading system, it's even worse than that,
1: right? I I think having grades is, in fact, a helpful way of distinguishing and honoring excellence. But I think there's an additional problem, which is that if I would rather have no grades at all than to have this extent of grade inflation. Because with this extent of grade inflation, you provide an incentive for students to only take safe courses, to only say safe things, and unless you're really bad, you're gonna get an A-range grade, but you take one course in which you take too high level of course of physics and you get a little bit lost, or a particular professor doesn't like what you say in the classroom and sort of punishes you through a low grade, that pulls down your overall GPA, and even if you're actually much more excellent than your uh, average classmate, you end up with a worse
0: GPA. That is right. It's also the case that if you turn out to be particularly extraordinary at something that you are extraordinary can't be represented when the top grade is given to half of all students. I don't think one should be surprised if a society that inflates the grades of all of its students finds 20 years later that the rhetoric of its politicians is inflated and the reported profits of its corporations are inflated. So we have stepped away from merit and excellence. And we have adopted a particular concept and set of concepts of social justice as being at the center of the purpose of universities. We celebrate particular ideas in ways that are very problematic, and we are reluctant to come to judgment. What started all the controversy at Harvard, and it has many different strands, was on October 7th, 34 student groups at Harvard speaking as a coalition of Harvard students condemned Israel as being responsible for the Hamas attacks. Those reports of the 34 student groups were reported in places where literally billions of people read them. And based on some, to me, inexplicable theory, the Harvard administration and the Harvard Corporation the trustees of the university could not find it within themselves to disassociate the university from those comments. I have no doubt that if similar comments had been made of a racist variety, there would have been no delay in the strongest possible Disassociation of the university, but because, and it's something you understand better than I, Yasha, because Israel demonization is the fashion in certain parts of the social justice proclaiming left, there was a reluctance to reach any kind of judgment. Even about the most morally problematic statements. It is not that the university was slow to comment on George Floyd. It is not that the university was slow to comment when some within it wanted to host a black mass. It is not that the university has been slow when social scientists have wanted to speculate about group differences. So I think that this combination, the um, veneration of a particular concept of social justice, the active disrespect for excellence— the celebration of identity rather than the pursuit of opportunity and the rejection of truth have made these institutions problematic in the impact they have on those who pass through them in whatever influence they have on the broader society and estranged from the broader society. And I think for any kind of private institution, it has to find a social contract in which it can operate with the broader society. And the fact that the ways in which great universities have have acted have so enabled the Elise Stephonics so-enabled, the Bill Ackman's, the Christopher Rufo's, speaks to the danger with which they have been governed. I come from a left-of-center tradition, and I'm not that far left of center, but surely left of uh, center. And I've always been acutely aware— in thinking of universities, that Ronald Reagan got his political start by condemning and running against what was happening at Berkeley in the mid-1960s. And that the tradition of then-Governor Brown, who had inaugurated this wonderful idea of free college education for anyone who had a B-average in a California high school, that all that got completely blown away in a tide of fury about welfare Cadillacs. But what brought that tide to prominence was a general revulsion at what had been going on at Berkeley that Ronald Reagan rode to his political career. And so it seems to me that universities fail to govern themselves effectively at immense peril to themselves and to the broader progressive values that they hold out.
1: How dangerous do you think this moment is, not just to the reputation of universities, but to their actual ability to function as core institutions of the United States, not just serving the missions, but actually attracting the funding and so on they need to do the job, at least at the levels they have. I'm a little torn on this, right? On the one hand, you can make the case that even the most affluent and insulated universities like Harvard need federal funding for the research that they undertake, need federal funding to finance a lot of the student loans that its undergraduates take out. And when you have fallen so quickly in trust in the population as a whole, when among Republicans, trust in institutions of higher education is now below 20 percent, when even as moderate a Republican politician like Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, who is a very loud and persistent critic of Donald Trump, no longer wants to be affiliated with Harvard University, you can say, well, the next time that Republicans have a trifecta of government, they might really move to revoke the tax-exempt status of the Harvard endowment, perhaps to stop a lot of the research funding that these universities live off. And that really would be a very significant crisis. On the other hand, you can say, well, Harvard has an endowment of, it, uh, 50 billion, and it does continue to have real support in the population, and Harvard will always be Harvard and it'll always be fine. Where would you place yourself on the worry scale about the worst-case scenarios here? I
0: think one would find for any Ivy League school that the federal government was 10 times as large a donor, at least as any other donor. And I think it's fair to say that the universities have thumbed their nose at what is by far their largest donor. And they're certainly not prepared to take that casual and cavalier attitude towards much smaller individual donors because of what they think the consequences would be. So I'm very surprised if it's wise to thumb their noses at the federal government. I think it's fine to stand strongly against A set of people who, in many ways, are riding this horse, but wish the process of thought, wish academic freedom ill. But the problem is not that Harvard has worked itself into a war with Elise Stefanik. The problem is that it got itself condemned from the White House press briefing room. Of the Biden administration, that it finds itself subject to investigation from the Department of Education of the Biden administration, that the attacks on it are coming in a bipartisan way, that its traditional supporters are leaving in droves and reluctant to have their children be present in the environment. So I find the idea that they can be impervious to this extremely implausible. I think one of the aspects of how this has happened Is that while on the one hand, we think of intellectual communities as being the most broad minded of communities, on the other hand, they are actually among the most narrow, insular, and looking inwards in the way they evaluate themselves and in the way they think of the necessary uh, decision making. You know, there's an old story about when uh, Pat Moynihan had decided to leave the UN and called the dean of Harvard to say he would be returning. He said he'd let the president know. And the dean of Harvard assumed he was referring to the president of Harvard rather than the president of the United States. And that bespeaks a kind of attitude that I think is very problematic. Now, Yasha, I am a great believer, however, in the power of self-denying prophecy. I think that's what has actually propelled the United States over many years, and I suspect it may propel universities, that it is precisely the capacity to become very alarmed when off track, that leads to correction and leads to the most dire prophecies not being realized. So I suspect some which way that universities will, in some way, find their way back. You're starting to see signs of it. I think it's pretty universally recognized that it was a disgrace when classes were occupied or shout were disrupted or speakers were shouted down or library sanctuaries were invaded by banner carriers and nothing was done. I think that somehow the word has gotten out and I think order – I hope and rather suspect this uh, semester will be restored. I think there is a kind of awareness that the practice, which is present at many universities, that if you're a job applicant, you have to show your research. That's right. You have to show something about your record as a teacher and how successful you have been. That's appropriate. And you have to write an essay pledging your fealty to particular concepts of diversity that are then read by the diversity bureaucracy before your application can move forward. I think there's a growing recognition that that's wrong. And I suspect before too long, that will start to be phased out, even as we maintain a focus on widening a circle of opportunity and making sure that everyone has a chance to participate. So I think that you're going to see restorative forces come into motion, not as fast as the critics want, not as fast as I want, but I rather suspect that there will be a tendency towards uh, some restorative forces.
1: I love the idea of a self-denying prophecy. And I agree with you that there may be a moment for correction that is in the works. One of the questions is what this correction is going to look like. You identified earlier as part of a key of the problem at many of these universities, the hypocrisy, right? the hypocrisy of standing in front of Congress and saying, we really care about free speech, when in many situations and controversies in the last years, the free speech rights of faculty members and others at the university were not respected when it didn't come to anti-Semitism, but other kinds of forms of bigotry or supposed bigotry. The hypocrisy of very loudly condemning certain kinds of political statements and events, but not condemning other political statements and events. Now, I I see there's a kind of temptation to jump one way or the other, right? One response to this is to say, The problem is that Jews haven't been sufficiently protected, right? All of these other groups have come to have these group protections. We have become incredibly sensitive about anything that any member of that group might claim to be discriminatory or insensitive, whether or not that's true in a particular circumstance. And where we went wrong is not recognizing that Jews are also a vulnerable group, and they also need to be protected against speech that they might find offensive and so on, right? Another way out of this is to say, no, we actually have to go back to having a genuinely robust conception of academic freedom in which we tolerate that some people will say unpleasant things, in which the university stops speaking for all of its community members, even when some of the community members may may say unpleasant things. So how I obviously tend towards the second of those solutions, and I think you do too. I don't think the solution here is to create one more group that has special protected status, it is to refocus the mission of the university on the pursuit of truth and the protection of academic freedom. But, but how do we do that? How do we make sure that the correction doesn't go precisely in the wrong direction?
0: It doesn't surprise me, Yasha. I think you and I are very much in agreement. And I would put it this way. I don't think any reasonable person can fail to recognize a massive double standard between the response to other forms of prejudice and the response to anti-Semitism. And the question is, I don't see how anyone can justify or defend that level of double standard. And yes, you could have debates about when anti-Zionism or the demonization of Israel is and is not anti-Semitism. But on any reasonable conception of what's going on, there has been a double standard. And I think those of us who are concerned about the double standard have to come to a view about how we want it remedied. And I think for the most part, The right way of remedying it is with a de-emphasis rather than a re-emphasis on identity. Everyone needs to be enabled to feel safe. That doesn't mean that they have a right to avoid being triggered by speech they don't like. That doesn't mean they have a right to be spared exposure to ideas they find noxious. That doesn't mean they have a right to bean counting exercises where the share of members of their group is evaluated against a share of its population. It does mean that they're entitled to the maintenance of an open and tolerant community Where no one is allowed to shut down any set of ideas, that they have the right to be protected from discrimination, and that they have the right for there not to be indoctrination. I think, in many ways, what is Most problematic and what would be most problematic would be an indoctrination arms race in which a larger and larger fraction of an education is consumed by a recitation of the grievances of various groups. I remember having an experience Which at the time showed my innocence, in which, when I was president, I hosted a dinner for our faculty who, in one way or another, were concerned with the field of American studies. And they talked about what they were doing. And each person, Talked about how they were exploring the victimization of some group within the population. And then somebody who hadn't really gotten the playbook and who was at the periphery of the field of American studies, because she was a professor at the business school, had the nerve to say what I was thinking and didn't quite have the nerve to say, which was. America's been the most successful country in the history of the world. It is the country to which people from all over the world want to come, that in many ways has been the light of the earth for a very long time. And one might think that some part of the field of American studies would be about how that happened. And yet... Nobody's talking about that at all. And I thought it was a completely fair question. And I, from time to time, ever since, pick up the Journal of American Studies. And it would be more accurately described as the Journal of Anti-American Studies because almost everything in it is directed at, in some way, a condemnation of America. And so I guess I wasn't terribly surprised to learn recently that there was a movement in the American Studies Association to follow on their movement of several years ago, which was to vote a boycott of Israel. That uh, next movement was to object to the term United States on the grounds that the states had only been united by force. So I do think that there's a lot that very much needs to be adjusted.
1: Let us change gears a little bit. You recently joined the board of OpenAI after very tumultuous events at the organization. Everybody can go and read up on those. I'm not going to be uh, asking you about the details of the strange events uh, led up to the change in the board membership. But tell us about what you see as the promise and the peril of artificial intelligence. I mean, evidently, this is a giant technological revolution whose impact we're only just beginning to feel. It seems to have a potential to vastly increase economic productivity and perhaps even human creativity. And at the same time, it is a potential danger. It's a potential economic risk because it may, as people always fear, when those new technologies lead to mass uh, unemployment. It is, I think... Uh, threat to our self-conception as humans because it is at least possible that within the next years artificial intelligence will be better at creating songs than musicians, better at creating pictures than painters, better at uh, inventing photographs than photographers, better at writing uh, novels or uh, erudite works of academic scholarship than academics. And finally, of course, there's the risk of AI going rogue And perhaps being the beginning of the end of humanity. How do we think about this just tremendously important development and what impact it's going to have on our society? It's
0: really hard to make predictions, especially about the future. And I don't think anybody should speak with complete confidence. I think um, there's very substantial reason to believe that this is a major event in history. One of my academic colleagues, when I was asking him about its significance, said the most perceptive thing that I have heard about it. He said, it's the first major new way of knowing for mankind since the invention of the scientific method." And that is something that is very powerful and I think is very existential. And there is a capacity not just to execute, but to create here that I think really is going to be profound in its implications and i think you saw that in the degree of virality which was not anticipated by its authors even with chat gpt and i think that that progress is very very likely to continue I think one thing that is probably underappreciated at this point is the magnitude of the inputs that will be necessary for this process to take place. It is imaginable that data centers will be substantial as a use of electricity a decade from now on a planetary scale. And if one thinks about what that's going to mean for the demand for fabs, the demand for power production, the demand for, for all of that, I think it is something that is truly, truly important. I think it's important to remember that over time, we change our conceptions of what the human role in things was. I remember there was discussion during the period when I was coming out of high school of how if people no longer used slide rules to do calculations, they wouldn't have the fundamental intuition for what was going on within the calculation that using a slide rule provided if they used a calculator instead. I remember when there was discussion of how the printing press would diminish the role of telling and of memory by enabling storage in this other way on pieces of papyrus.
1: And what about the poor scribes and monks whose lives were spent copying books? I mean, a very noble endeavor, but not one that today we think a lot of humans should be devoting their time to.
0: Nor do we really think, I mean, there are things lost when people no longer copy books, but we ultimately come to see them as being gained in other ways.
1: Well, a lot of developments have tanto losses, right? I'm sure that there's a certain kind of intellectual endeavor and a certain kind of getting to know a text that comes from copying a book and that there is something lost in the world. That doesn't mean that all in all we have a loss. We may
0: have lost that, but what we have gained is not unrelated and is much, much larger. And I think, you know, it's the essence of uh, Thomas Kuhn, that there were questions that Ptolemaic astronomy addressed that Copernican astronomy does not. But Copernican astronomy supplanted Ptolemaic astronomy, and it was for the best. It was kind of taken for granted around the time that it happened to me or probably somewhat before me that when you learn to drive, if you were a responsible person, you had to understand a certain amount about what went under the hood of your car, because you never knew when there'd be a problem and when you'd have to fix something. Somehow, nobody has any expectation of any kind like that around learning to drive a car today. And I think in the same way, there are a variety of things that will be no longer necessary to understand to have a uh, coding performed on one's behalf i've heard it said and i don't really know that a nuanced conversation between two world leaders or two sophisticated business leaders on a very complex deal where neither of them speaks a word of the other language will be able to take place with machine translation that will capture every nuance better than a human could within a matter of a year or two. That Henry Kissinger could have had his celebrated dialogues with Chao and Lai better with a machine as the translator than any human translator within a couple of years. So I think this is going to change what we learn ourselves and what we delegate. I think it is likely to change the skills that are valued from the skillful execution of the basically understood cognitive towards tasks that involve more profound sparks of creativity, that involve more iconoclasm outside of an existing corpus, and at the same time, put more of a premium on EQ relative uh, to IQ. And so I think the set of individuals who are in a position to be most productive and Contribute most is likely to change. I think, and this is something we very much wrestle with at OpenAI, that with technology so potent, there are profound questions of governance for the broad society that one wants on the one hand to provide a set of checks and balances and tensions to preserve against disastrous discontinuity. And one wants at the same time to allow things to move forward. So I suspect that this is going to engage people from almost every discipline, from Political philosophers to quantum scientists. And I think that maybe this is a point to sort of bring our conversation together. I wish I could feel that our great universities were in a stronger position to be contemplating all of this. And providing some of the wisdom and some of the thought that will be necessary to help us as a society manage all of this. Because I think it's quite possible that we're involved in another transition like the post 1870. Transition. You know, I'm very much influenced by the writings of my former student, Brad DeLong, and many others who basically make the point that uh, from the time of Pericles to the time of London in 1850, standards of living on average, economic change on average, was probably less than one or two hundredths of one percent each year and then all of a sudden we now live in a world where standards of living have doubled four times in china since i left graduate school four to- four doublings compared to hundreds of a percent and you know that's the transition that took place in the aftermath of the industrial revolution and it's why people live twice as long as they used to, why child death is now a rarity, why literacy is generally possessed around the planet. But look at the first half of the 20th century, and the transition was also associated with all kinds of catastrophe. And we may well have another very major transition. And we want to make sure we get the fruits of that transition, but we sure hope that transition happens in a better way. And I know that's something that the people who are at the cutting edge of this research are very much engaged with. I think it's a mistake to despair. If you had asked Anybody associated with the Manhattan Project or anybody watching, what was the chance as assessed on Labor Day of 1945 that no nuclear weapon would ever be used in anger over the subsequent 85 years, 75, 78 years? I think people would have regarded that as extraordinarily unlikely. So it's not that we lack the capacity to manage these things, but we can't assume that it's something that will happen automatically.
1: So look, I broadly agree with with that view, but, but let me push you on a couple of points. The first is that um, surely the invention of a printing press was on the whole a good thing for humanity, but it did lead in part to a lot of religious sectarianism and strife and the religious wars and other things in the next centuries right so you know when you take a large enough historical view surely the invention of a printing press was a very positive thing but it certainly had very significant negative consequences over the course of the following century that killed uh, you know significant percentage of a european population at the time. You know, you you invoke the invention of the nuclear bomb. With respect, I would say that the jury is still out on that. It is indeed a great achievement of humanity and of, of, of political governance under very complicated circumstances. But we have not had a nuclear war in the last 80 years. But we also have to not have a nuclear war in the next 2,000 or 20,000 or 200,000 years. And I'm not sure that 80 years of having been able to manage this is a sure indication that we will continue to manage it for the next two, 2,000 years. And relatedly to this, there is, of course, some amount of nuclear proliferation. And more broadly, you know, my hunch is that it has proven to be very difficult in history to limit the spread of a human-invented technology. At the beginning, it is usually preserved to a very small number and some kind of elite to use it. But over time, more and more people come to be able to avail themselves of that technology. And broadly speaking, with perhaps very limited exceptions, our state of knowledge about the world is that which is conformable with human ingenuity and you know, whatever institutional constraints we have that make us not as good at developing medical drugs as we should be and so on. Right, But humanity's co- collective capacity to say, that technology seems potentially dangerous. You know, let's go this far, not further has proven to be very, very limited. So isn't the, the the question here simply what a fully developed AI looks like and whether that will submit itself to human will or whether it it, it does uh, in technological term tend towards becoming self-serving? And if it's the latter, do we really think that not just for the next ten years, perhaps not just for the rest of our lifetime, but for the rest of humanity, we're going to be managing, to contain that destructive tendency. I guess I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that.
0: yes I certainly did not intend any complacency. You uh, referenced the post-printing press experience. I referenced the post-Industrial Revolution experience as examples of problematic transition. But I think it is maybe a little too easy to succumb to extreme pessimism. I do think it's an extraordinary achievement that there probably, that it's not just that nuclear weapons have not been used for the last uh, 78 years. It's that there hasn't been war between major powers for the last 78 years. And yes, 78 years is the bat of an eye, but there's probably been no moment in the last 3000 years when 78 years went by without a war between major powers. So yes, we need to do everything we can with as much imagination as possible to contain the possible risks here, and I don't mean at all to be heard as minimizing them. I would say that, and this is a comment that always comes up in these discussions, if those with the greatest orientation to responsibility and concern fail to move forward, others will not fear to tread. And so I at least think that it is very important that American institutions maintain leadership in this sphere to the maximum extent that is possible. I think it is very important that as much reflection goes into how this will interact with the broader society, as goes into the development of the particular technologies. So I don't want to be heard at all as exuding complacency But at the same time, I do think that the capacity to augment the kinds of cognitive strengths that we already have is something that is very, very valuable and can be extraordinarily constructive. I don't find The view of my economist colleague, Daron Asimoglu, that sees the history of progress as a history of woe, as that's somewhat unfair to his view, but I think you can understand why I said it. I don't find that to be a compelling reading of history, but this is going to be immensely important. And, you know, I am 69 years old, so a large part of what is going to tell the story is going to be the work of generations like yours, not mine. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
1: Finally, I want to broach one last topic, which is the economy. First of all, there was widespread expectation that the United States would go into a recession. That appears not to have happened. What do you think is the economic outlook for the coming months and years? And why is it that this expected recession has at least so far not materialized?
0: I was much less confident than most others that we would head into recession because I felt that it was very difficult to assess Just how contractionary monetary policy was. My own suspicion was that because for a variety of reasons, bigger budget deficits, greater uh, renewable energy demand, for example, the neutral interest rate had increased. I was much less sure that the increase in interest rates was going to be quite as contractionary as many other people supposed. And I think that's turned out to be the case. So I would be quite surprised if the economy went into recession over the first two thirds of this year. I'm a bit less certain that inflation is quite as down for the count as many people, uh, suppose. I think there are still some populist forces. I think there are still quite tight labor markets. I think there are still risks of various geopolitical shocks. So I see inflation as a bit less down for the count than the consensus does, though inflation has certainly come down faster and apparently more durably than I would have expected. In the absence of an economic downturn, I think that may speak to the credibility which the Fed was able to regain by acting very, uh, strongly. But as I look at the world, I don't see the macro financial outlook as being the principal risk that keeps me up at night. I see, um, Populist politics and all that can follow from revanchist populist nationalism in this country and others as the greatest threat to our ability to move forward in ways that are prosperous. I see problems on a global scale, climate change, pandemic disorder as risks going forward. I think those are larger risks at this point than cyclical economic fluctuations.
1: Why is it that Most economic indicators seem to be very positive at the moment. When you look at the kind of metrics that people usually look to to see whether or not the economy is doing well, employment, uh, rising wages, and so on, there seems to be a story of the economy going well. And yet, Americans and voters continue to disagree with that reading, continue to say that actually the economy is not going nearly as well as economists and some opinion writers seem to believe and suggest. Is there an obvious explanation for that apparent discrepancy?
0: There's nothing obvious, nothing that is a complete explanation. For my best guess, Yasha is that the single most important explanation for that phenomenon is that For reasons that you can explain in theory, economists do not treat the cost of money as being part of the cost of living. But people do. They don't look at the price of a new car. They look at the monthly payment when they buy a new car. They don't look just at the price of a house. They look at the monthly payment that goes with purchasing that house. And if you look at calculations of inflation that include the cost of money, they show a much, much less favorable picture. And so I think it's the failure to recognize that that is in a technical sort of statistical sense, what explains some of the anomaly. Just on that point, that's interesting. I had a sort of
1: slightly different version of that theory. And I I wonder what you make of that, which is that in addition, economists compare inflation usually to over a period of a year, right? And so today the inflation rate, excluding the cost of money is not that high, so to buy a, a loaf of bread at the supermarket today is not that much more expensive than it was a year ago. But most people don't compare it over the course of a year, right? They have a sense of prices used to be X, and that used to be some sort of in Kuwait time period that is 10 to 3 years ago. Right, And so each time we go to the supermarket, they say, look at how much more expensive this loaf of bread is than it used to be five years ago. And so even as the inflation rate has come down in those economic terms, they still feel the inflation because they're not comparing it to a year ago.
0: That was the second explanation that I was going to give. And I think that points towards the fact that ultimately people do sort of understand That we're not going to see sub $1 gasoline in the United States again, that we're not going to see cars that have four digit price tags in the United States. So I think ultimately people do judge prices relative to some norm. And over time, those norms do adjust. But my guess is that you will see some catching up of perceptions with statistics. How rapid that will be, I think, is hard to know. I think there are also issues of referred pain around a whole range of social phenomena, kind of anime. Some people blame it on uh, social media. Some people blame it on other things. And so I suspect that when other things in people's lives aren't working ideally, they often blame the economy. You know, I learned something, Yasha, from a kind of trivial experience I have as a college professor. Some semesters I lecture better, some semesters I lecture worse. Students evaluate me and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. My reading list changes very little from semester to semester. But in the semesters when they like me as a lecturer, they think I've got a great reading list. And in the uh, semesters when they don't like me as a lecturer, they think I have a poor reading list. And it's not really because the reading list changes. It's because there's a kind of tendency to generalize about everything together. And I think that's some part of what's going on as well. So people are not happy with the
1: incumbent president and so therefore they blame the economy. That naturally leads me to what was going in any case to be my last question, which is that you've served in distinguished positions under the last two democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. They were both two-term presidents. They managed to win re-election. So uh, even though you were never uh, sort of on the political campaign side, you got an inside view of how they were able to win and engineer those re-election victories. Now we have another president whom you know well as well, Joe Biden, who is trying to get re-elected. Those re-election efforts are going somewhere between medium and bad, Certainly, he seems at this point to be trailing Donald Trump in many national polls, in many uh, swing state polls. I think on the prediction markets, Trump and Biden are roughly equal. Uh, I think as we're recording this, Trump seems to be a little bit favored. A few days ago, Biden was a little bit favored. What is it that Joe Biden can do at this point? What is it more broadly that the Democratic Party can do? to improve the arts for November? And is that going to be mostly something on the economic front or mostly something on the broadly speaking cultural front?
0: Yasha, I tend to find political experts' opinions on economic questions to not be very sound and thoughtful. And I'm not sure why I should suppose that my opinions on political questions will be particularly sound and thoughtful, so I answer the question with humility. But my instinct is that political parties prevail and incumbent presidents prevail by returning to a broad American center, and I am hopeful that Joe Biden, whose roots are with an American middle class, will find a broad, expressive American voice in the months ahead that will place less emphasis on responding to each particular identity element in the democratic bully base and instead speak to the hopes, the obligations, the expectations of all Americans in universalist kind of language. And I think that he has styled himself over many years as Middle class Joe. And that's something that goes deep within him. And my hope and my best guess is that we will see that come out. And that as it comes out, and as the clamor of the various activist groups within the party comes to seem less dominant he will emerge as a unifier and as a successful candidate but again i answer economics questions with confidence and political questions with trepidation larry summers thank you
1: so much for coming on the podcast thank you